Genesis 6, 1 and 2. Two short verses with three wildly diverging opinions. From ancient kings to strange beings not of this world, things only get weirder the farther down the rabbit hole you go. On this week's episode of the Better Than Fiction Bible Podcast, the sons of God, the daughters of man, and the crownless shall be king again. You're listening to the Better Than Fiction Bible Podcast. I'm Gandalf. I'm Matt. And I'm Nathan Van Horn. The Bible is the most read book ever, but to some it is merely fiction. Join our conversations as we connect the dots to reveal that the story of the Bible is not only true, it's better than fiction. To learn more about the show or to contact us directly, visit us online at www.betterthanfictionbiblepodcast.com. Welcome back, listener, to episode 26 of the Better Than Fiction Bible Podcast. As always, we are glad that you've chosen to join us for these 30 minutes of diving into God's Word to connect the dots. And before we get into that, um, I have got some good news, uh, not just for you, listener, but also for you, Matt and Nathan. Um, As we record this, we are approaching ever closer, inching to the 700 subscriber count mark which is a huge deal in my mind because this is really, you know, we're not attached to, you know, gigantic pre-existing companies or anything like that. This is a fully homegrown independent podcast. And the fact that we can be doing this for only half a year and already be approaching 700 subscribers is a huge blessing and a shocking one at that. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. A year ago, the existence of the podcast was, uh, our lunch conversations, Gandalf, and then our phone conversations, Nathan, and just how to see God's brought it together. And we've had the privilege of allowing others to join in on this conversation. It's, I would have never thought it would be here. Yeah, I had I had a church member ask me about it last night, and I guessed that we were around 600, so 700 is news to me. Uh, but that's not that's not full listenership, you're saying. That's just subscribers, right? That's right. That's just subscribers. In fact, there's, uh, according to our metrics on pl- across all of our platforms, there are 2,000 roughly people that have made the decision at some point to listen to any amount of the podcast, which that's a huge number. And it also means that most of you who have ever listened to this podcast uh, are not subscribed. Only so- one out of three of you people subscribe. You have <laughs> one job. Yeah. One job <laughs> to subscribe one out of or three. not we, to subscribe. That is the question. Come on. One out of three. Come on. Yes. Uh, su- subscription is a narrow path, and there are few who find it. <laughs> that's right. But we're grateful for the but listen. Oh, but we're so things. grateful to have you. Thank you yeah, for that's listening right. to the Better Than Fiction Bible <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Let's not get too negative here. <laughs> well, then, in that case, listener, there are two things you can do. It, one, if you are a first-time listener, if for whatever reason the almighty algorithm, blessed be its name, has given you this podcast, I would heavily advise you, do not listen to this one as your first one. Go back one. In fact, maybe even go back to episode one. That's what we always recommend. But if you must listen right now, then listen to episode 25. And the second thing for everyone else is that if you are not subscribed, consider joining the ranks of the 700 and becoming subscribed. That way you'll always have an update whenever we publish this on uh, Tuesday morning. 
When we get to a thousand subscribers, Gandalf is going to get a Better Than Fiction Bible podcast tattoo. Um, that that is incorrect. So okay, this is okay. Fake news. Sorry, sorry. I was just spitballing. Didn't stick. <laughs> right. Oh yeah. Well, uh, so uh, it, it is appropriate though that we capture that only one out of three people subscribe to the podcast because today we're going to talk about three views and we're only going to subscribe to one of them. Ah, very well done, yeah. sir. Yeah, Nathan, I'm glad that you have retaken your rightful place. The the crownless shall be king again. As, <laughs> as segue, guys. So we, we have we have Gandalf handling all matters of technology. Matt is scandalous topics guy, and Nathan is. I hope he comes up with a segue. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Well, this is a scandalous topic. Yeah, it is indeed, and for that reason, just because it's a lot to take in. Uh, Matt, why don't you do a, a quick, why don't you read the verses we're covering and then do a cr- quick recap for what we talked about last week? I'd be happy to. As always, reading from the ESV, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. For he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So you've probably heard this passage before. Maybe as recently as last week when you listened to the podcast, and if this is your first time, you've probably read Genesis 6 before, and as Gandalf mentioned last week, it's one of those things that just gets skipped because, like, I don't really know what that means. But just to recap last week, what we talked about is who are the sons of God? So we introduced that topic, and this is the first time in the Old Testament, in the Bible, that the phrase, son of God, appears. Um, So it appears here in the plural, and that's a little bit scandalizing and shocking to many Christians. Growing up in church, you think, Son of God, Jesus. That's right, because when it comes to orthodoxy, like talking about the multiple sons of God can like get you in trouble quickly. But Matt, we said this next, we said this last week, if you Fast forward to the New Testament and you use sons of God plural, but it's for the adoption of earthly believers into God's family. No one no one bats an eye at that. Yes. And that's why one of the things that we've talked about at our church is a way to use this as a distinction is that there are many, according to the Bible, many sons of God that are talked about. There are many beings, whether human or supernatural, talked about in the scripture. However, there is only one God the Son. Uh, we want to affirm our orthodoxy here. There is only one Jesus. There's only one divine Son of God in the exact image and representation of who the Father is. There's only one who is one totally and completely with God the Father, and that is Jesus. However, the Bible's language talks about God having many or multiple sons. So when you hear that, don't think, oh, well, this means there are many sons like Jesus. No, nope, there's only one like him. However, well, no, you're nice. yeah. Yeah, that's right. We talked about that last week. 
but there is only one like Jesus. But the Bible chooses, and again, if it's like, why? Well, you know, I just don't like that the Bible says that there are other sons of God. That just doesn't sit well with me. Well, it may not sit well with us, but that's... We didn't write it. Yeah. We didn't write it, and this is how they chose to use it. And, so, and I'm not so bold as to edit it either. Yeah. Tell me about that. What's neat is in the New Testament, whereas, you know, in the New Testament, sons of God is often used for believers adopted into God's family. Uh, we've talked about in the Old Testament, sons of God is used almost, if not exclusively, of supernatural or heavenly beings. Job, Psalms, Daniel, those places. Yeah, you do have son and father language used of God's relationship with Israel, but the actual phrase verbatim, sons of God, um, possible exception, sons of the living God with reference to the people of God and the prophets, uh, but actual verbatim phrase, sons of God, I can't think of a single instance, and it's not a common phrase, but I can't think of a single instance where it doesn't refer to heavenly beings in the Old Testament. Correct. Uh, Psalms, Job, uh, when it's even in its you know, plural form. E- even the you know the fourth guy in the fire in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar says, "I see a fourth one, and he looks like a son of the gods, Correct. and it's clearly a supernatural being." Right. So what? Right. How does that bear on what we're talking about today, Matt? Well, the way it bears on today is that even though this is what we've shared, there are there's more than one way to skin a cat type thing, as the old expression goes. Uh, there are different ways, diverging ways, of explaining this passage. And diverging is the key word there. It's not just um, different, but they go into different, they take different trajectories. And so we want to look at those three views today. You already know the view that we're going to land on, but we know that it is, because of human nature, near impossible to communicate other views without being biased. Uh, We just want you to know out front, this is, you know what our view is, and we're going to now look at the other views, and we're going to talk about the strengths and weaknesses of each of the views. I'm going to just list the views real quick, and then... Except our view, which has no weaknesses. (laughs) That's right. I'm just going to, I'm just going to list the views here, these these big three, and And then then Gandalf... Yeah, Gandalf, tell me, just hearing them, what they might sound like to you, and then we'll unpack them. So here's the big three. First is when it comes to, now again, we're not talking about the Nephilim here. That's for another time and another place called next week. Seven Uh, episodes from now. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So we're just talking about who the sons of God are. So here's the three views. The sons of God are the descendants of Seth. Yes, in this passage, the sons of God are the descendants of Seth. That's one view. Number two, the sons of God, and this is called the dynastic kingship view, that these are kings in the antediluvian world that took wives um, from the general populace. And then the third, which would be the supernatural view, the one that we've already kind of talked about. So just as I say those options to you, Gandalf, what's going through your head? Uh, First thing that's going through my head is this reminds me of my middle school days uh, coming up with fan theories on the Harry Potter forums. (laughs) (laughs) This is exactly exactly what this feels like. If you're reading Harry Potter in middle school, you were bold, brother. Yeah. I didn't read that stuff till college. (laughs) 
All right. Well, okay. Well, let's see. Well, the sons of God as the descendants of Seth, that one seems pretty obvious. That people who hold this view, I'm going to say, are people who, coming just off of the genealogies that yeah. we just finished reading, yep. are saying, okay, this is a continuation, a continuation of that. And it's not meant to be literal in the sense that, like, the sons of God, as in the literal sons of God, but rather the sons of God are... Uh, analogous for Seth, as in the godly line, because we talked about there's a go- there was the godly line of Seth, and then there was the wicked line of mm-hmm. Cain, right? They they were right. sat they sat there as a juxtaposition against each other. Genesis just, four and so, five talked about the two lines. So you're just, on the money. So just that, explaining it, he's convinced me. Yeah. <laughs> so well, you know, like we talked about, you know, that it has some merit because I would I could see if you were coming off of that. Remember, chapter numbers aren't in the original text. That's something we uh, came up with later. Preach. Yeah. So that seems normal. All right. And then the second one, dynastic kingship view. Um, this one's going to be a little harder for me. I'm going to say We did that... talk about the Sumerian king list. Yes, we did. Yeah. And, and coming off of that, the idea of the sons of God being attracted to the daughters of, daughters of men is just like a very 30,000-foot figure of speech for basically saying, as an explanation of how civilizations came about. Because again, I like that. Genesis four, yeah. Mm-hmm. We we just finished reading about an explanation of how society came to be through Cain's line and the rise so of technology. Again, why not the rise of government? And we talked about that those were not literal one to one timelines. They were just you know they were overviews. So again, it doesn't seem out of place to say, okay, well this is a figure of speech or a literary device. Just to say, okay, a bunch of stuff happened and now we have a bunch of people. Can I interject here? You're doing it. A bang up job of explaining. I was about to say, man, I'm glad I've taken segues back because we don't. Yeah, (laughs) this is incredible, man. So because you've like I was holding view one until you explained view two. Clearly, you're not just a casual (laughs) listener; you're a subscriber to this podcast. (laughs) I was holding view three, and then you explained view one, and then you I was sold, and then you explained view two, and I'm like, wow. Okay, so take us away on the supernatural view. So now convince me of the weird one. That's the tall order. Well, you know, we've talked about this, but we'll say it again and we'll affirm it. You know, there are people who hold to these other views who take the Bible perfectly seriously. Oh, absolutely. No question. And in fact, most, you know, if you're Orthodox Protestant, you know, Baptist, Methodist, all that, these are probably one of these two views is what you were taught growing up. And so finally is the third view, which, as we all know, is the one true view. That, <laughs> Or at least the weirdest one. <laughs> That's right. The, the weirdest one. If you're weird enough, sung. even if people think you're wrong, they won't talk to you about it. <laughs> mm. <laughs> uh, so basically we're saying that the sons of God refer to divine beings kind of in line with uh, the serpent character we saw. So we already know they exist at this point in the text. Uh, they have physically, materially come down from heaven, and they have cohabitated with man, which that women. is by far the strangest, or with, with women. When I say man, I meant mankind. mankind. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, that's, which is totally that is reasonable, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, actually, that's, that one sounds the least convincing now that I say it out loud. Danger, like Will Robinson. Right. Yeah, so we've In got fact, a work yeah, cut out for us. Just to, just to like comment of just listening to those three descriptions, the first two sounded much more reasonable. Is it too late to change my mind? Can we vote again at the end? <laughs> we'll, we'll delete episode 25, actually. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, well, Nathan, why don't, you, why don't you walk us through, and we can 
all three of us, we can comment together on strengths sure. and weaknesses. Guide us through this. Let's start with view number one, the sons of God as the descendants of Seth. Well, as yeah, as Gandalf nailed it, uh, the most attractive parts of that view are, number one, it requires no stretch of the modern imagination, and it's coming right on the heels of those two genealogies, right? Uh, so, hey, we've already talked about one group that, went the wrong way and one group that went the right way. Um, uh, so, you know, uh, why not just read the, you know, the sons of God as uh, Seth's descendants and why not read the, the daughters of men as Cain's descendants? The problem is a close reading of the text, not just in relation to the rest of the Bible, uh, but even in the immediate passage, there's some complications. For example, the godly line of Seth in Genesis 5 culminates with who? With whom? Sorry. Noah. And in Genesis 6, Noah is the solution to the problem of the sons of God mingling with the daughters of men. Why would Noah be the solution to to the genealogy that culminated in him one chapter earlier? Does that make sense? In other words, Genesis 5, he's a part of it. If if that's who the sons of God are in Genesis 6, he stands over against it. And so that doesn't seem to flow naturally. The biggest reservation that I have about uh, the Sethian view, the genealogy view, is that, man, if it is so self-evident, why don't we see reference to it in the rest of the Bible? Nowhere are uh, is sons of God language used anywhere else in Scripture uh, with regard to Seth's descendants. Nowhere in the rest of the Bible is Seth brought into with reference to the flood or the precursor, you know, things leading up to the flood. Um, and, and just as importantly, in the history of interpretation, um, the Sethian understanding seems lost on Jewish interpreters. In fact, uh, it's not a Jewish interpreter, it's a Christian interpreter who first popularizes the Sethian view. Uh, Matt, you mentioned this last week, Augustine or Augustine, however you pronounce that. Uh, and then really from the time of the Reformation onward, of course, this is in close proximity to Enlightenment and, you know, readings that make more immediate sense to our Western brains. Uh, really from the time of the Reformation onward, the Augustinian uh, interpretation really comes to dominate the scene um, until, you know, uh, modern biblical studies has done, you know, more ancient Near Eastern um uh, you know, comparative linguistics and things like that. And that's where the second view, the dynastic kingship view, got a little bit of traction. Yeah. And so one of the things I want to say here is that sometimes, like pre, pre-seminary training for me, it was difficult for me to understand how biblical interpretation could be getting more accurate with the passage of time. Because in my mind... For instance, the most accurate studies about the Bible were the oldest studies. Like, for instance, studies from 400 years ago would have been more accurate than the studies which take place now because, you know, there's been more opportunity for, you know, things to be corrupted and stuff like that. But one of the things that I learned in theological education, the reason biblical study and interpretation is getting more accurate is we're digging up and discovering more about the ancient world. We're being, we have the ability to translate more ancient documents. We're understanding more and more and more about the ancient context. And it's not that, for instance, we're smarter than John Calvin, 
it is we have access to information that John Calvin did not have access to. So it, it's just, or you can take any one of the Reformational Fathers. So that is something I wanted to throw in there of just that's how, and that's why biblical interpretation is becoming more accurate over time is because we're learning more about the first century. At least that's and what be, I think. And before, yeah. Yeah, and before. We, t- we talked about that in previous episodes, how the Septuagint, that translation of the Bible, is actually more, ac- more accurate than translations we have of in Hebrew, even though those are the original language. Well, I'm, I'm glad you went to the Septuagint. Um, one of the things I mentioned toward the end of last week's episode, and I don't know if people listened to the end, so they may have missed it. Um, another reservation for me, I, the Sethian view was so attractive for so long, um, but there's there's a grammatical feature. Um, you know, you see that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, so seeing that they were attractive, literally in the Hebrew, good, and so they took them as wives, right? Saw, good, took. Where have we seen that combination of words? We saw it in Genesis 3, right? Mm-hmm. And there were certainly supernatural claims going on there. <laughs> the, the serpent sure. who's more than a serpent. What's interesting is in the Septuagint, um, even the way the Greek is written, it, it moves those three words to positions of prominence. Uh, they all stand, they're either part of the independent clause or of a dependent clause. They all move those, those three words that, that, you know, hearken you back to Genesis three, uh, are moved to the front position of their respective cr- clauses. So like literally it's seeing and the sons of God, the daughters of men, that good they were, they took for themselves wives, uh, from all of them. <laughs> this, you see how you see it's almost awkward in the Greek to put those three words that harken back to Genesis three and something of uh, supernatural import in positions of prominence. I think that's interesting. So you're saying to so as I'm understanding you is that one of the problems with the sons of God as descendants of Seth is that if we're going to interpret Genesis three supernaturally the connecting tissue of vocabulary and theme really cause a problem in Genesis 6 because now all of a sudden you have to really disconnect these connecting things just to say that, hey, there's really nothing supernatural to see here. It's just a normal, normal thing. Well, and so it's it's kind of an equal opposite uh, version of the problem that you have with the second view, the dynastic kingship view. On the mm-hmm. one hand, the dynastic kingship view is very attractive. We know that uh, not only in the ancient Near East, I mean, Western civilization as a whole. And I'm not even, you know, in Jesus's day, Caesar had a coin and on one side it called him a Pontifex Maximus. What? Well, what? that's a high priest. What do priests mm-hmm. do? They navigate the relationship between earth and the heavens, right? On the other side of Caesar's coin, it had Divi Filius, son of a god. Uh, this mm-hmm. is stuff that's claimed well beyond the Old Testament era. By the way, let's go even beyond that. Well into, uh, you know, uh, well into the modern West, what what are kings, how are kings legitimating their rule? By what? Divine right. Divine right. Uh, and is there some claim in that, certainly there is going back to antiquity, that divine right comes from some characteristic or quality that separates these men from the rest of men, right? Mm. 
Yes. In fact, uh, you know, I think, again, I, I love going to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, sets up a statue of himself to be worshipped as a god. Right. Um, and so, you know, the dynastic view seems to take uh, the most understandable, it, you know, it kind of mediates the two positions. It kind of pushes you into a more contextually sensitive reading of the text um, over against, you know, uh, the generic losses of the Sethian view, but it's still not going, you know, full-blown weird uh, like the supernatural view. Um, a, a gentleman I work with here, Pastor Lee, has done a lot of mission work and partnerships through the years with Japan. And one of the things that even to this day that the Japanese believe is that their their emperor is divine. Oh, you still have the you still have leader worship in many places, right? Um, right. Whether whether tribal, pre-developed uh, nations or fully developed nations, North Korea, for example. Sure. I mean, yeah. well, I mean, I mean, it's hard to imagine a nation being more developed than Japan, one of the most developed nations in the world, and and yet that that's a part of their culture. I'm thinking of uh, Zack Snyder's 300, where the the king, king Xerxes character ca- keeps calling himself the God King, and ah, uh, he's divine, and yeah. that's why his victory is assured. And that and that fits very well in antiquity. That fits very well. And so, yeah, this is an attractive view, especially you know if you've got a biblical studies background. Um, the question is, where are these characters coming from in the story? Uh, so, number one, this is a you know this is a later reading. Um, of the text, the whole history of interpretation thing. Um, But the big thing for me is within the flow of the narrative as we have it, where are these characters coming from? If they're so, in other words, the strongest view of the Sethian view is the weakest aspect of the dynastic King's view. Mm -hmm. Uh, The, you know, hearkening back to the genealogy, Hey, there's a lot of emphasis on Seth's descendants and Cain's descendants. Right. Where are these dynastic kings coming from if they're yeah. not part of the text? They're just randomly inserted into the story. It seems it's like. assumed because nobody is even called a king. That That's that it. even for instance, because I know we compared the the sons of Seth, the descendants of Seth to the ancient Sumerian king list and stuff like that. Um, that, but that, that's extra biblical. Like there, there is nothing about Genesis that is emphasizing kingship. So, well, and can can I can, and can I say this? Sure. To me, this view makes more sense, and perhaps even the most sense, if you combine it with the supernatural claims of the third view. I guess my my biggest issue with the two the two first views is that they're they seem too mundane to me, right? Like, um, I just grabbed a Bible. Make the Bible weird again. Yes. Yeah. Well, I just gra- I just grabbed a Bible out of my drawer in my desk and I looked and Genesis 6 in this ver- in this publication of the Bible anyway is is only page 16. Like we're not very far in. This story is extremely supernatural. It's not mundane in the slightest except for the genealogies maybe. This story has been full of oh, supernatural events. That is an so interesting point you're making. So it seems weird to me to try and read in mundanity. Uh, ser- sermon sermon title on the Sethian view: the first boring story in the Bible. Right, um, <laughs> right. Wow, that's um, a good observation. That's a good. That's a good take. Well, and again, you know what? Uh, one of the reservations I hear. I was talking with Matt about this earlier in the week. Um, one of the biggest reservations I hear to the um, supernatural view: the idea that heavenly beings, you know, pretty consistently called sons of God. Uh, for heavenly beings, and in the Old Testament especially, 
Uh, but the idea that they came down and uh, cohabitated with the daughters of men, meaning earthly beings, some say, well, that, that represents a different rebellion from the one that the serpent had in Genesis 3. Does that, does that cause you to stumble at all, Gandalf? In other words, if, if, the, if the heavenly rebellion occurred in Genesis 3, then how could this act of disobedience that God has to judge be occurring in Genesis 6? Um, it, it, maybe a couple of years ago it would have. Uh, would have given me pause. But now you've been point. working on this podcast for almost a year. Yeah, but now, now, now that uh, Matt Powell has been my pastor for about five years, uh, I'm ready I'm <laughs> ready for anything. I've, <laughs> I've totally corrupted him. I've, I'm always happy with you blaming Matt. Well, well played. <laughs> um, you know what's interesting to me? In uh, Genesis 3, the serpent and the serpent alone is the only one who's judged. Right. Mm. No serpent and his rebellious legions, just the serpent. Isn't that interesting? Mm. And, uh, and le- let me frame it a different way. Um, we have no problem acknowledging multiple earthly rebellions against God's will. <laughs> right. You know, Hitler wasn't the first of his ilk, even though he was a particularly bad example. Sure. So why are we inherently scandalized by the ad- idea of multiple heavenly rebellions against God's will? Hmm. That's um, a good point. So it's interesting, even to my dispensationalist friends uh, that, you know, are going to take a very futurist approach to prophecy and stuff like that, they interpret future rebellions against God's will as a part of the end times scheme. Like, so mm. if it can happen there and at the beginning and there, like... Well, and again, you'll you'll see multiple times moving forward in the biblical narrative where something happens with spiritual beings that try to thwart God's earthly purposes. I think of the temptation of Jesus by the devil himself at the mm-hmm. outset of his ministry. Uh, uh, he, he tries to accomplish very something very similar to Eden. You have a food temptation, turn these stones into bread. You have a power temptation, right? Um, uh, excuse me, you have a worship space temptation, right. uh, jumping off the temple without being harmed. And you have a uh, worship temptation. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth if you'll bow down and worship me. Man, that's very Eden-esque. And it also harkens a little bit to Genesis 6. 6. Guys, can I I tell you what? Can we call an audible? Uh, There is so much to say with regard to the third view. I say we save it for the next episode. we've, We've hit some of the knocks against it. But I really want to unpack how the rest of the Bible plays into the third view um, and how I think it makes the best sense, even if it is the weirdest sense of the verses that we've been reading. I'm glad you said that because I was about to suggest, and I just we're we're not going to apologize to the listener because, I mean, uh, we want you to get this. Um, and in all fairness, instead of putting a, a 60 second wrap on this, uh, let's let's digest this a little more. So, man, you've got my vote. All right. Well, there you have it. Uh, episode 27. We'll uh, take some time and we'll unpack on how this uh, this third view impacts the rest of Scripture and how it kind of ties into everything. So you've heard our take. You've heard the other takes. And next episode, we'll go ahead and we'll dig a little bit deeper. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode. As always, please subscribe and follow us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Just type in Better Than Fiction Bio Podcast into any of those and you'll see it. And if you are still listening and you want to contact the show with either praise or criticism, whatever, you can go to our website at www.betterthanfictionbiblepodcast.com and we'll see you next week.
We'll be back. Shalom. Boom. Done. I thought that was good. That was a great episode. That was a great episode. <laughs> Stop.